Well, you can turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to be uh, starting an, a new uh, series in the book of Ruth um, for the next four weeks. I'm going to kind of take it a chapter at a time, which is a large chunk of Scripture to read, uh, but it's a compelling story uh, and a, I think a unique story in the Bible. So let's hear Ruth chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> In the days when the judges ruled, there, were, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and, his wife, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return home from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if all, also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. 
And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray together. O make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Well, whose, whose story is this? We, we met a lot of characters. There's, there's even more to meet as we go along. But like, whose story is this? The, the title of the book is Ruth. Uh, is it Ruth's story? Uh, is it Naomi's story? I mean, certainly those, those two feature prominently throughout the entirety of the, of the thing, right? Uh, and they're, in, they're, they're the only ones in every chapter. Um, so is it their story? Is it the story of, of Ruth and Naomi? Is it the story of, of this guy that we're going to meet later on named Boaz, who's going to become very, very important? Is it, is it Boaz's story? Uh, we find this book sort of at the end explaining how the, the uh, spoiler alert, the sons of Ruth and Boaz end up in the, being the, the, the ancestors of King David. And, and so this story is in, in large part uh, a prequel to the David stories and, and the Davidic kingship in, in the, the history of Israel. So is it, is it David's story? Well, yes and no, mostly no. Uh, we're told uh, of their lives and we're told of the events that happen and take place uh, around them and that they go through and that they walk through. But really, and you know where I'm going with this, this, this is God's story, as is all of history, as is the God of history in, in, in creation and fall and grace and glory. That is the, the four-part summary of all of history from beginning to end. This is God's story. But what we have in the book of Ruth here is a zoomed-in, magnified, close-up look of the joys and tragedies and choices, both good and bad, of this, this simple, ordinary family. And the thing I, I love about this family is that they're not perfect. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. They, there are choices that were made, and some of them were bad, uh, and those bad choices affected people that, that had no say in those choices or didn't make those choices themselves, but they found themselves swept up in the consequences of those choices. And some of the choices that are made are good choices, right? So the, it's a mixed bag, just like all of our families are, all of our lives are. Every choice that we make can be summed up as being a mixed bag. So this could be any one of us, really. But Ruth is about God's faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness to not only Naomi and Ruth, or to Boaz, or even, as we're going we're gonna to learn later on, God's faithfulness to Elimelech. Uh, but it's also about God's faithfulness to us. It's about God's faithfulness to his covenant people. And this morning we're going to find that even though Elimelech leaves the promised land behind and goes to this far country of Moab, he cannot leave behind his covenantally faithful God. 
God has a plan for this family. God has a plan for his covenant people, and God is sovereignly redeeming his covenant people. This is the story of God's faithfulness to, to one family in difficult circumstances, but it's also the story of God's faithfulness to redeem his people. So this morning, I want us to look at this chapter in two ways. First of all, leaving the land of promise and then returning to the promise of grace. Leaving the land of promise and returning to the promise of grace. So let's look at, at leaving the land of promise. And so you can put like, that's point A, like main point one, and then subpoint famine in the house of bread. Okay, so if you like outlines, there you go. Um, but I, the first words of the book of Ruth are in the days when the judges ruled. And so we need to kind of, we need to go back and remember our time in the judges. Remember we, we I did a, a series in the book of judges sort of hit some of the highlights of, of the book of judges. So think back to those, those sermons if you, if, if you can, um, but remember in the book of Judges, there's a cycle, there's a cyclical story that happens with, with each, of the, each of the judges, these cycles of the people turning away and then the Lord bringing some calamity or enemy or, or, or oppression, allowing some oppression to befall his people and then the people cry out to God for a redeemer and then finally God providing that redeemer in the form of a judge who who uh, takes care of whatever the oppressive force is that's going on. And so that's the, the, that happens over and over again, and it's this spiral, and it's sort of this spiral downward as the people of Israel again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And that, that's a refrain that we hear in the book of Judges. And again, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But another refrain, do you remember what the other refrain was? In those days, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so when the author of Ruth says, during the time of the judges, that is as much a theological statement for us and a theological clue for us as it is an historical one. So it's, it's not only helping us place this story in the timeline, but it's also helping us understand a little bit about what the, 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 the overarching attitude was in the culture of the people of God at that time. And so it kind of helps us understand the mindset of Elimelech as he makes this decision to leave the promised land. So verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So here we are in, in Bethlehem. Uh, the name of the, the town is obviously Christmas and all of that, but it literally means house of bread. Bethlehem literally, literally means house of bread because it was kind of situated in the bread basket of, of Israel. And, and there's this famine in the house of bread. So there's no bread in the house of bread, right? And it could be, since we're already told that this is in the time of the judges, it could be that this is a cycle, that we're in the middle of one of these downward turns in the fortunes of Israel because, again, they have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. It could be that this famine was the result of one of those cycles of oppression, that some outside enemy had come in and taken away their food 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a, a, a weather-related famine or something like that, some kind of agricultural disaster. It could be that they're in the middle of suffering the oppression that is described in the book of Judges. So already we get this zoom-in, close-up look at like, okay, here's what the situation on the ground is actually like when it says that so-and-so came in and oppressed Israel for 20 years. Here's what that actually means. It means famine. It means people don't have enough to eat. And so they, they feel frightened and desperate in these circumstances, and they feel like they have to make a decision. And so the decision is uh, to leave the promised land. Well, okay, so what? What's the big deal with that? Uh, it's called the promised land, obviously, because it was... It was promised, right? It was the promised gift of God to the nation of Israel. That This is where it was promised to Abraham. That says, your offspring are going to be greater than the stars in the heaven, and they're going to live in this land, and everywhere your foot trods, you're going to have this land. This is, I'm giving this to you. And so there was, there was this long period of waiting, and there was this exodus, and there was the Passover, and the Red Sea, and and the conquest and like all of this stuff took place so that God's people might come into this specific swath of land in the Middle East known as Canaan or now the nation of Israel, right? And so the land was this promised gift of God that over a long period of time and through great toil and trial and, and great mighty acts of redemption was finally gifted to the people of Israel. Like, that's where they left, to go to the land of Moab. And not only that, but great pains were taken to ensure that all of the families of Israel had their piece of the promised land. And this is going to become important later on in our story, but that, that Israel had a piece of that promise. And, and even like if they sold it, now, it would return to the original owners at some point through the years of Jubilee, right? And so, so the land was the center of their, their covenant identity as the covenant people of God. It was the center not only of their provision and possessions through their, their particular plot of ground that they got, but it was also the center of where God was worshipped. If you draw these concentric circles out... Uh, you can start in the Holy of Holies, you know, that place where the Ark of the Covenant was, like the actual presence of God on earth was there. And then out from that to the tabernacle, and then out from the tabernacle uh, to the nation of Israel, that, that geographic region, like so that's where worship took place. And then beyond that was the rest of the world, the Gentiles. So the promised land was a land where, where God was looking after you. He was with you. He was protecting you. And to leave it is a serious thing. Psalm 91.1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Not only that, but where do they go? They leave the promised land for where? Moab. Well, do you remember Moab from Judges? <laughs> remember who, who the king uh, of Moab was in Judges? 
One of the best stories in the book of Judges, uh, old fat king Eglon was the king of Moab in Judges 3. The one, the, the one where Ehud stabs him, and it's just this wonderful, Dale Ralph Davis calls it this wonderful yarn that, that is spun. And, and that's the nation. They go to an oppressive nation. They go to their enemies to find shelter from this uh, famine. So to some degree, this is a failure of faithfulness for Elimelech. And the name Elimelech means God is king, by the way. But that's how it goes. We never intend to leave the safe path of obedience for very long, do we? But it rarely works out that way. Verse 2 says, they went to Moab and they remained there. Uh, They didn't just sojourn, but Elimelech looking for ultimate answers outside of God's will. And the family of Elimelech ended up staying there for 10 years. Elimelech and his two sons eventually die in Moab. So fleeing to Moab wasn't the answer. In fact, as she'll say later, Naomi is left more empty Uh, more isolated, more impoverished than if she had stayed in Bethlehem. Leaving the land of promise makes the famine worse for Elimelech's family. So this famine in the house of bread. Now let's look at clinging to the God of grace. If I say the names Magnus Carlson to you, uh, who am I talking about? Am I talking about uh, like a, a, a rings of power uh, character or like some evil mastermind? I'm not really, but it, it should be. I'm actually talking about a, a chess grandmaster who, whose name is, of course, Magnus. Um, but there's, a, there's this great scandal in the chess world right now between Magnus Carlsen has accused Hans Niemann of cheating, of somehow accessing a supercomputer that is telling him the next move to make as they play these matches. So he's plugging in these moves and he's getting the best counter moves out of it. And and it's turning chess from being a game of carefully thought out strategies and choices to to this mere algorithmic computation, right? God doesn't plug history and all of the choices of all of the people into a giant supercomputer and then it spits out the answer 42 and, and let it tabulate the outcome according to the algorithm. No, there, there is this massive X factor at work. What is the X factor? It's grace. Grace is the, the X factor. A big, a big part of the story so far are these choices that were made and, and the consequences of these choices that played themselves out in, in, in different ways. And, and some choices were made by other people that, that have other consequences. And it's not as if God is certain, kind of a, a accessing his actuarial tables and figuring out what the next move is. no. God is graciously covering their mistakes and our mistakes with his providence. Verse 6 says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So if we think again about this story in terms of the cycles of the judges, uh, where are we in the cycle now? After 10 years of no food, now we have food. So there is, there is the people are sinning, uh, there is an oppressor sent, and then the people cry out, and now God has sent a redeemer, and that redeemer has done his work. He has raised up a judge who has liberated the people. It doesn't say that the Lord sent rain or an especially good harvest, although he, he may have done both of those things. But what does it say? It says the Lord visited his people. The Lord came near to his people. The Lord moved towards his people. The Lord acted in redemptive history for his people. That there is redemptive action from the covenant God, Yahweh. And so now it's time to go home. It's time to go home. They're, they left, they had, when they left Bethlehem, it was, it was Yahweh plus nothing. They thought when they went to Moab, it would be everything minus Yahweh. And they found out what they really needed was the covenant God. They really needed the Lord, Yahweh. Then we have these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and this just very sweet exchange between them. And Naomi wants the best for these two young women. But Naomi, verses 8 and 9, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. What part of... We don't, we don't know what part Naomi played in the, the decision to, to move to Moab. Certainly some part. Naomi isn't running from the chastisement of God here. And I, she recognizes that, that what has happened to her is in some way a consequence of this, this sinful decision to move and leave the promised land for, Noab, for Moab. And she says, it is in verse 13... For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She recognizes that this in some way is, is a discipline of God against her that these two women are also experiencing. Right? That her sin and the consequences of it have affected these two young women that she loves so dearly. And Naomi says that her daughters-in-law have dealt kindly with her. Whereas what does she say of how the Lord has dealt with her? Bitterly. There's a note, a strong note, of lamentation in Naomi's voice. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth, Ruth clings to Naomi because Naomi is her link to the covenant people of God. And therefore, Naomi is her link to the covenant God himself. 
And all throughout this, Naomi is using the name the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. She is naming the covenant God before Ruth and Orpah. And she, she, in, in, she invites these two women to go back to your people, but not only to their people, we're, we're also, who also is she in telling them to go back to? Go back to your gods. But Ruth wants no part of it. The X factor of grace has been working on Ruth. So that's leaving the land of promise. Now let's look at returning to the promise of grace. Identifying with the people. With, uh, Ruth identifies with the promise of grace. Verse 15 through 17, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, big G, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, and notice the Lord there is in all capital letters, meaning the proper covenant name of God. May Yahweh do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth, Ruth identifies herself with the covenant people of God here. She, is, she has taken on the faith of Naomi as her own. This, there's this beautiful covenant declaration from Ruth. Your people will be my people and, and, and your God will be my God. It sounds very similar to the, the covenant promise or the covenant formula that God gives over and over again in, in the Old Testament, Genesis 17, 7 and Exodus 6, 7. The covenant formula is you will be my people and I will be your God. Like, Naomi or Ruth rather learned this from somebody. She probably learned it from Naomi. There's this deep covenantal conversion. How did that happen? How did that come about? I think it came about through the bitterness of what Naomi has gone through. The tragedy of Elimelech and the two sons becomes the seedbed of the covenant of grace in Ruth's life. You can imagine this. We're not told in a text, but you can, you can walk through the scenario, right, in your mind. You can imagine Ruth, this, this former pagan idolater, watching her mother-in-law go through this tragedy, watching her mother-in-law first lose her husband, and then later losing one son, and then another. Ruth heard her prayers over sick beds. She's, she's seen Naomi call out to God in lamentation and yet hold on to her faith and yet remain faithful to her covenant God. She has watched Naomi as she continued to worship the Lord in the middle of her grief. All the while, of course, Ruth was sharing that grief. Ruth lost her husband as well. And they grieved together. Sometimes when the Lord walks us through a time in Moab, or like in the spiritual desert, 
And then as he brings him back to himself, the impact of our witness is increased because of his work of grace in our lives. In other words, God uses Moab days to let us taste the bitterness of sin so that we can experience the joy of no longer being identified with sin, but being identified with our Redeemer, Jesus, and so that we might love the sweetness of his grace even more. Let's look at the bitterness which brings the sweetness. I remember one time opening the, the pantry door in our house when I was a kid and, and seeing this. It was the biggest bar of chocolate I have ever seen in my life. And so I thought, oh, no one's going to miss uh, a, a hunk of this chocolate. And so I went in, and it was kind of hard. Uh, but I, I broke off a piece and just kind of got a big gnaw on it and... It was the nastiest stuff I'd ever put in my mouth. Uh, I spit it out. It was the most bitter, like acrid tasting. It was not the chocolate that I thought. I'd, I thought I'd hit the jackpot. But what I'd hit was a big bar of unsweetened baking chocolate, uh, which is horrible. Uh, until you add milk and sugar and all these wonderful other ingredients to it, like how can something which starts out so bitter end up so delicious? Like, you've got to have the bitterness, though, don't you? You've got to have the bitterness of that raw chocolate before you can end up with the brownies. And that's what Naomi kind of talks about that in, in terms of her own name. She, she, she renames herself uh, from, from being called Pleasant Naomi to Mara, which means bitter from life to death. This bitterness which, which so, so well seasons and informs and helps to create the balance of this sweetness. Consider the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7 verse 58 says that they cast him out of the city, that's Stephen, and stoned him And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Would we have had Paul if not for Stephen? I don't know. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 10, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There's a, there's a great hymn, and Philip can tell you which one it is after the service. I can't remember, but it says, uh, no, it's God moves in a mysterious way. And, and the hymn line goes, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Philip can tell you what number in the hymnal it is. Uh, you can do that. And so we have the sweetness of them returning home. Verses 19 and 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up 
uh, because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi, she doesn't know it yet. She doesn't know it yet, but she's about to taste the sweetness of restoration and reconciliation. Naomi has been emptied by her time in Moab, but the Lord is about to fill her up again in this mighty, wonderful way. It's the sweetness of watching grace at work. That's what, that's what we get to do. As we go through this book, taste the sweetness of watching grace at work in this story. Verse 19 says, the whole town was stirred up. It only takes one, one conversion, one returning prodigal, one lost sheep being found and coming home. It only takes one mighty demonstration of God's redemptive power in the world, one example of God's grace being born new in the life of an unbeliever to renew the belief that God, he does want to see redemption happen. He does want to see sinners come to know him. He does work through his gospel. He does want to use you and me to spread the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ, to declare grace. God is interested. <laughs> He's interested in redemption and conversion I think what I'll close with is just this simple thing for us to take with us. God is working. God is at work. His his purposes are going forward. He is inviting us to join him for the glory of his name and for the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're working. We thank you that uh, your, your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that, that your grace never runs out. It never stops working in our lives. Your grace never stops changing us. It never stops moving within us to... To, to draw us deeper into the, the loving kindness of your goodness. You're, you're still working in the world. Lord, forgive us for looking at the world and thinking that it is hopeless. Rather, help us to see the, the need for the gospel of grace, that, that those we think could never believe Lord, you will cause to believe. Those who we think are so hardened to the good news of the gospel, soften our hearts towards them. Those who we would even count our enemies, Lord, give us love and compassion to share the good news with the understanding that you are at work and that you are moving 
and that you are active in redeeming your people. Thank you for this story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Elimelech and help us to see and be encouraged by your work of grace in this one family's life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.